This morning, the book of Mark, Mark chapter 8. And there, there's a basic principle in life that things are worth, that are worth having is it's going to cost you something. We all kind of know that the way life works is if you really want something, oftentimes you have to earn it. I mean, a good marriage, it doesn't just happen. It's a willingness of both parties to serve one another, to give to the marriage, and it'll cost you something. But that's the amazing part about the gospel, isn't it? As we were singing this morning, it's free, absolutely free. It doesn't cost you anything. It is a gift of God given to you based on the sacrifice and suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we receive it as a gift. It's given to us as a gift, and all we have to do is receive it by faith. But if we're honest, nowhere in the, in the Scriptures does it say that the Christian life is easy, right? There is a cost to live the Christian life. And many people are unwilling to pay that cost because Jesus says it's going to be a life of suffering, commitment, dedication, and self-denial. So it does cost to follow Jesus. And this morning, we're in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 8, and leading up to this portion of Scripture, Jesus has been trying to let the people of Israel know that He is more than just a good teacher, that He's more than a prophet, but He is truly God the Son, the long-awaited for Messiah, the coming King, the anointed one. And in this chapter, he's going to make it plain. Up to this point, he hasn't said specifically that I am he, but right now in this chapter, he makes it all and he lays it out clearly. Now, we're at the last part of chapter 8, and Mark chapter 8 begins with Jesus doing an amazing miracle. He feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few small fish. And no sooner does he finish that than some Pharisees, the religious leaders, they come up to him. And they say, hey, if you're really from God, show us a sign from heaven. I'm kind of like, what? He just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. And not only that, over the past many months, he has performed miracle after miracle. He has cast demons out of people. He has healed many people, even raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. And they want a sign. They want something like flame from heaven or bread for heaven. I don't know. But Jesus' response to them is one of pain. It's one of grief and disappointment. And not only do the people of Israel and these leaders not really understand who Jesus is, they want a sign. I don't think his own disciples understand yet who he truly is. And so Jesus responds to these religious leaders in Mark chapter 8, verse 12, and this is what he says. He says, why does this generation seek for a sign? For truly I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. And there's a parallel passage in the book of Matthew, and he says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And we know from Matthew 10 that Jesus says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights on the belly of the earth. So Jesus right there lays out to them, hey guys, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be buried. And then he gives a warning to the disciples. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And whenever 
anyone speaks about leaven in the scriptures this way, he's speaking about the sin of unbelief. He said, hey, watch out for their unbelief, man. Herod didn't believe. These guys don't believe. You be careful. And the disciples go, we don't have any bread. Totally missed it. And so Jesus responds to them with this in verse 17. He says, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? When I broke the five loaves and I fed the 5,000, how many baskets did I have left? And they said 12. He says, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many pieces did you pick up? And they said seven. And he's saying to them, do you not understand? Still at this point, the disciples don't get it. They have an idea that he is the Messiah, that he's the coming one. And I think even in their mind, they're thinking, he's going to be this political leader. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. That's the Messiah that we're waiting for. He's the one. And to kind of just confirm his point, in verses 22 through 26, Jesus then performs another miracle. He heals a blind man. And that leads us to our section here. The disciples are expecting a conquering king. But Jesus is going to show them what to really expect from him. And... He's going to show them what they need to expect if they're going to follow him. So the question we want to ask this morning is what are the costs to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be his disciple? We're going to take this in sections. So let's read the first part, verses 27 through 30 of Mark chapter 8. It says, When Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am. And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others say one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one. I want to pray for the word of God. Father, right now, Lord, I pray that you open our hearts to this teaching. I pray that we would be listening very closely to your word and may you minister to, to it, to us, Lord, through the work of your Holy Spirit and the truth that's laid out here in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we're gonna see this morning is that the cost of fall of Jesus is that a person must surrender their misconceptions for the truth. Now, many people have an idea who they think Jesus is, but it's different than what scripture teaches Guys, they worship a false god. Right here is the middle of the book. Right here in chapter 8, there's 16 chapters. And right here, it's a, it's a demarcation line. Things are changing in Jesus' ministry. Right here, it's going to change from Jesus being this powerful, miracle-working prophet to he's now going to be a suffering servant. And everything he does from after this is pointed straight to the cross. And so things are changing dramatically here. And, and what the Lord wants to do is he wants to share this directly with the disciples. So he takes them to Caesarea Philippi. Now this is about 25 miles north of Bethsaida and it's right under Mount Hermon. It's a beautiful place. And the reason they called it that is it was named after Augustus Caesar and Herod Philip. And it contained this marble temple in the honor of Augustus Caesar. And it was for the glory of Rome. But what the Lord is going to do is he's going to say, hey, the glory of the Lord is coming. From this moment on, it's going to be all about his betrayal, about the whipping post, and about the cross. 
And so Jesus asked them a question. And he says, who do people say that I am? He's asked them, hey, what's the story out there? What are you guys hearing? What are people saying about me? Now, we need to understand that, that there's two basic passages here. There's Mark and there's Matthew, and they're parallel passages. Mark is written to the Gentile audience. Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. Matthew puts it this way. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's emphasizing Jesus' title at the, as the Son of Man. Eighty times in the New Testament, the Son of Man is used by Jesus when speaking about himself. And it is the title of the coming Messiah. That's what the Jews knew that as. When you said Son of Man, they knew, oh, he's talking about the coming Messiah. So Jesus is saying, hey, what do people say about me? What do they say I am? And then this is how they respond. Look at verse 28. And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And Matthew actually adds Jeremiah in there. So why John the Baptist? If you remember back in Mark chapter 6, Herod was freaked out because Jesus is on the scene. He had beheaded John the Baptist, but all of a sudden this guy, Jesus, shows up and he's doing miracles. And, and Herod thinks, wow, this must be the risen um, John the Baptist. And so some of the people began to take that. Maybe he's John the Baptist. They said Elijah, because Elijah did amazing miracles, Jesus is doing amazing miracles. But in, in Malachi 4 or 5, there's a prophecy that Elijah's going to come back before the great and terrible day of the Lord, right before the tribulation. So some of the our people are saying, wow, these amazing miracles doing, maybe it's right before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Maybe it's Elijah. Others say Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah do? He came out preaching repentance. What did Jesus do? Came out preaching repentance. They said, oh, maybe he's Jeremiah. And then other people thought, well, maybe he's just another prophet. They all thought he was something other than what he truly was, the Son of God the risen one, the anointed one, the, the, the Messiah, the long-awaited for Messiah. They missed it. And my heart this morning is that you haven't missed it. Jesus proclaimed clearly that he was the one. In John chapter 8, verse 18, he says, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me, he testifies about me. And in verse 24, he says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, unless you believe that I am He, the Messiah. You will die in your sins. And we know that the spiritual world, they knew who He was, right? The devil in Luke 4, Matthew 4, He says, hey, the Son of God. And we know that every time Jesus just about cast out a demon, what they say? You are the Son of God, right? So they had it clear, but the Jewish people, they missed it. They didn't know. They're trying to figure out who this guy is, and that's exactly what's happened in our culture, isn't it? There are thousands of Jesuses out there, all kinds of Jesuses. Muslims believe that Jesus is called Issa, and he's a highly honored prophet, but he's not divine. Buddhism, many teachers of Buddhism believe that Jesus is an enlightened being, very similar to Buddha. The Baha'i faith believe that Jesus was the manifestation of God, but he was only one of many manifestations. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he's the first created being, that he's Michael the archangel that then becomes the perfect man, but he's not God. And you could go on and on and on. What do people say about me? But then he asks even a more important question. What do you say? And that's for us here. Who do you say that I am? And this is the question, guys, that we have to answer. Which Jesus are you worshiping?
the Jesus of your own making or the Jesus of Scripture? Now, no sooner does he say that than Peter steps forward and says, you're the Christ. And then we know in Matthew, he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Gets it. Nailed it. Dead sinner. Bullseye. Got it. Good for you, Peter, right? It's uncompromising. It's bold. And I even think some of the other disciples are that they're kind of thinking the same thing. We know that Andrew, Peter's brother, when he brought him to the Lord, says, hey, we found the Messiah, right? So they're all thinking, this is it. This is him. But their idea of the Messiah, the Messiah does not really line up with what Jesus was proclaiming. They're thinking, you've got this conquering king, and we're going to get to co-reign, right? They have a misconception of who Jesus is. He's not God the Son. They don't even call him the Son of God. But he's a man that's come to reign and bring in victory and overthrow Israel. At this point in the ministry, they're missing it. So I think all of them here believe that, yeah, okay, we'll give him this. He's the Messiah. Now, we know that Jesus was clear. We know in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And time and time again in the Scripture, you see Jesus portrayed truly for who He was, God the Son who came not to, to overthrow, but to serve not to lead, but to surrender. Not to come in victory, but to suffer and to die. So Jesus warns the disciples here in verse 30. He says, hey, be quiet. He says, don't, don't tell anybody. And the reason he does that, is he doesn't want the leaders to stop his ministry at this point. He just lays it out. You know, before I became a follower of Christ, I was really influenced by the New Age movement. I had two sisters that were really into it. So I thought Jesus was one of many great masters, right? And they're all kind of even. They all kind of had the same power, the same deal, and that's just what I believed. And then my wife wanted to start going to church, and, and so I started going to church, and I started hearing preaching, and it, man, it's not lining up with what I'm thinking. And then I started to read the Bible and saying, wow, that doesn't line up either. And then I started to listen to Christian radio, listen to message on the radio. Uh-oh, that's not lining up. And suddenly I was confronted I had a misconception of who Jesus was. And then the Holy Spirit started to work on me, and I started to realize, uh-oh, I think I'm a sinner. They keep talking about this sin thing. I used to think I was a pretty good guy, but now I'm in trouble. And I suddenly realized that what the Scripture says Jesus is and who I thought He was are two totally radically different things. He is truly God the Son, and I either have to accept Him or reject Him. And God, by His grace, one summer morning, I'm driving in my car, going to work, and I was so convicted listening to a message by Greg Laurie. And I knew that I was in trouble with God. I was trying to make it on my own, but man, my sin was right before me, and then Greg Laurie made very clearly that Jesus came and died for our sins. And then if you would, by faith, step forward and accept, and you could be forgiven, and right there I pulled over, laid it on the line, I believe, I trust that you... Where are you this morning? Which Jesus have you been worshiping? Is it the Jesus of your mind, this misconception of who you want him to be, the many thousands that are out there? Or is he, God the Son, come to suffer and die for you? C.S. Lewis put it like this. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man Jesus was and is the Son of God, 
or else a madman or even something worse. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being some great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, some of you might object here and say, well, Pastor Rob, I mean, it's only I need to receive Jesus, right? You need to receive Jesus with full knowledge of who he is or else you've chosen the wrong Jesus. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7. He says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, he's the one who will enter. And many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and did we not cast out many demons in your name and did we not perform many miracles in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You don't want to be there. Do you have a misconception of Jesus? You need to turn to the word of God. And if that's you this morning, you need to repent. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And so the Israelites and even his own disciples at this time, they had a misconception of who Jesus was. The first cost is you need to surrender your misconception for the truth. There's a second cost to follow Jesus. A person must surrender their plans for his plans. You have to be willing to surrender whatever plan it is that you have and say, Lord, I'll surrender that plan to you. Now, many people think that there are things that God should do or not do, but when the scriptures don't line up with their plans, they get upset. But Jesus came with a predetermined plan from God. Look at verses 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days would rise again. And he, he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him to the side and began to rebuke him. And turning around, seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Now, this is the first time that Jesus told the disciples that he was going to come to suffer and die. And he just tells them plainly, this is it. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer and die. After three days, boop, I'm going to raise again. Plain, straight, no confusion, clear. And this is, again, the halfway point of the book. So Jesus is shifting this idea. Okay, you guys have been seeing all these miracles. And you think that that's pointing to a conquering king. There's a different plan. My father has a different plan. Are you willing to follow his plan and not your own? And many people like the Jesus of their imagination, but you can't handle the truth. And Jesus says, no, there's a plan here. My father has a plan for me. Now look at verse 31 again. He says, and he began to teach him that the son of man must suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He's going to be killed, and then he's going to raise again. Now, what's interesting about that is Jesus points out the three main offices of the Sanhedrin. He says the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, or the scribes. Those are the ones that judged him unjustly. They're the ones that condemned him to the cross. He's telling right there, guys, I'm going to go. I'm going to get judged unjustly. I'm going to the cross. He's saying, this is the way I'm going. And I think at this point, the disciples are kind of shocked. They're like, what? Wait, wait a minute. And I think all of them are there. But you know, Peter, he's always the one that steps forward, right? 
foot in mouth, that's him. And so he's just like, boom, no you're not. So look at verse 32. It says that Jesus was stating the matter plainly and then Peter takes him to the side and it says to rebuke him, to rebuke him. One minute, you are the Christ, my Messiah. I'll follow you anywhere, Lord. Then, oops, I'm gonna rebuke you now, Lord. See a problem there? And if you look at the text and the language, it suggests kind of an air of superiority. And what Peter is saying here is, hey, you got the information wrong, Jesus. You got it wrong. We all know the story. You're supposed to come. There's going to be an uprising. You're going to lead. We're, of course, we're going to be right next to you, co-leading with you. And we're going to overthrow this, this evil enemy of ours. And we're going to reign in power and victory. You got it wrong. And when, G, when Peter started to declare this, he wasn't listening to what he had just said. He had just said, you are the Christ so his plans weren't lining up with God's plans, were they? And you've got to ask the question, do you guys have plans that don't line up with God's plans? There are some plans that we just know. You look at Scripture, it says don't do that, but you've decided you're going to do it anyway, and some of you are probably living in those plans right now. If that's you, you need to repent. You need to turn. And some of you might have in your mind, well, I'm going to do certain things, but I know it's probably not really going to be pleasing to the Lord, but I really think I want to do it. And he'll forgive me, right? That's the way it works, right? I think it's better to follow his plan than to follow your plan because that's what Peter's trying to do. He's trying to come up with a different plan for our Lord. And it's hard to fault him. I mean, ever since he was a little kid, Peter's been taught the Messiah, the anointed one, he's going to come and he's going to rule. He's going to overthrow any enemy. And so that's where Peter's at. But Jesus, he doesn't give an inch. I mean, no sooner does Peter say that than Jesus turns. He looks at the other disciples. I think he's saying, okay, I know all you guys are thinking what he's thinking. And then he looks right at Peter and he publicly rebukes him. Why? Because Peter publicly rebuked him. And so Jesus, face to face, says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, Peter at one moment is speaking for God because we know in Matthew that Jesus says, my father has revealed this to you. And now at this moment, he's speaking for Satan. And this is a warning for us how quickly we can do that if we're not walking closely with the Lord and keeping our mind and our heart focused on the word of God. And Jesus says to him, hey, I didn't come to die now, he, he says to him, I didn't come to live, I came to die. I'm not here to take power, I'm here to lose it. I'm not here to rule, I'm here to serve. He's saying, there is a different plan here. You're going one way, Peter. You guys want to go this way, I'm telling you, I'm going this way, and it leads straight to the cross and suffering. And as we're going to see, it's not only leading me there, it's going to lead you there too. Are you willing and we know that Peter gets it because his very first sermon, right? Acts chapter 2. Peter recognizes this. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He says, This man Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. He got it after the resurrection. But up to this point, he doesn't have it. Now, I want you to see something really important. Look back at verse 31. This is crucial to the text. I actually like the way the NIV put this because it puts an emphasis on one word. 
In Mark 8, 31, it says, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, Jesus didn't just say, guys, that he's going to come and he would suffer. He said he must suffer. And that word must, it modifies and it controls the whole sentence here. And that means that Jesus must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. He must be resurrected. He's saying here, I have to die. It's critical. It's part of God's plan. And there are reasons. And of all the things I read, I really like the way theologian and pastor Timothy Keller put it. And I want to share with you his three reasons why Jesus must suffer and die. One, he said that that we have a love necessity, that all people on earth were created to need love. And God made us that way. But the problem is we know what real love and fake love is, right? We know when somebody's faking it because fake love is all about getting something from you so you feign love. And the problem is that in our natural state as sinners, we're selfish. And so we can't give the kind of love that we need. And so we're lacking that, but we desire it. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus didn't need our love. That's not why he went to the cross. He had perfect love within the Godhead. Full love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He came to give love. And he gives love perfectly. And when you receive him, you now are given the love that you need. And now you can actually give love back. He changes us. He transforms us. And now we can sacrificially give love because he gave it to us first. That's the first thing is we have a love necessity. The second thing that Timothy Keller says is that we have a legal necessity. Jesus came to die because we have a legal problem. Our sin has created a debt with God. And so we legally have a problem. But this is the way that works. When somebody robs you of an opportunity, when somebody robs you of your happiness or maybe your reputation, they take something from you that you can never get back. Justice has been violated and a debt, a debt has been created. The problem with that is there's only two ways to take care of that debt. Either you can try to ruin their reputation, steal their opportunities, ruin their happiness, or you can forgive them. But the problem with forgiveness is it actually costs you something. There is always pain in forgiveness because you have to give up your rights. You have to be willing to surrender and forgive that person. And so Jesus says, I must come to suffer and die because the debt was so great, he had to come and give up his rights as God. And he surrendered it all for you to forgive you. Second thing, we have a legal problem. Third one is we have a spiritual problem. Just as Pastor Neil was talking about this morning, he had to die because we need shedding of blood. We need the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 says that all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, this isn't a magical or mystical view of blood. The idea here, it's a life taken or a life given before its time. And it is the greatest gift that you could give on this earth is to give your life for someone else, right? And the only thing that could pay the debt of our sin was for the perfect Lamb of God to give His life to pay for that debt. 
We have a love necessity, a legal necessity, and we have a spiritual necessity. And they all come together when Jesus gave his life. He had to die. So verse 33 says that Jesus turns around, rebukes Peter, says, get behind me, Satan. Your Your interests are man's and not God's. Guys, if you have any other way to God than Christ, then it's Satan's way and not God's way. That's what he's saying right there. There is one way, and it's me, and it's the cross. It's going to incur suffering and pain. If you've got some other way, then you're Satan's tool. Be careful what you're trusting in. And there's a warning because if that could happen to Peter, it can happen to us. So some of your plans may not line up with God's plan. And my prayer that this morning is you'll readjust your thinking and say, you know what? I'm going to line my plans up with his. You know, when I first became a Christian, my plans were not to go on the mission field. My plans were not to even be a pastor. I had no idea. It wasn't even a thought. I was real content, guys, working as a sales guy, having a decent house, loving family, just kind of serving in the church. But God began to change my plans. And he began to put a burden in my heart for other people. And he began to open doors that I either could walk through or not walk through. And he began to make very plain to me that either I was going to follow him and obey him or I was going to disobey him and not follow him. But there was something I want to share with you. When, when God begins to change a plan, you've got a certain idea in your mind what you want to do. There's some things that can help clarify whether or not it's him. The first thing is you have to have a devotional life. You have to be seeking and knowing the Lord personally through prayer and the time in the Word of God. Because the Lord began to speak to me through His Word. He just started to talk to me specifically about the situation that, okay, He's calling me to go to England. Uh Uh-oh, okay, what does that mean? I guess i got to surrender these things. But He clarified it in the Word of God and through prayer. And my wife and I had dozens of prayers that were specifically answered as we began to walk the roads, both coming to here and to England. So you've got to have the Word of God and you've got to have prayer. But you also need godly counsel. You've got to have people that know you that love you, that see him working in your life, and I say that are actually more godly than you, they'll speak it straight. And when those three things are working, the word of God and prayer and these people speaking into your life, then you look at the circumstances. And you say, wow, that all lines up. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. The word of God agrees. While prayer has been in agreement, it's the Lord. My, chance, my plans are changed. I'm following that way. But too many people do it the reverse. Situation, oh, God's in. That's the plan. I didn't pray. You know, I didn't seek the Lord in the Word. I'm not seeking any counsel. I'm moving this way. Really? You want to follow God's plan? Okay? The cost to follow Jesus, you surrender your plans for His plans. The cost to follow Jesus, surrender your misconceptions for His, for his truth. And the last thing, very quickly, is the cost to follow Jesus, you must surrender your identity for His identity. Our culture is all based on self-love and self-esteem, but Jesus says you have to lose your false identity for his identity. I'm going to read the text and, and close. It says, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever, wishes to lo- whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, 
The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory of his Father and with holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those of you here standing here who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. This passage right here is not about gaining, it's about losing. Jesus is saying, you're going to have to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him. This is about suffering. This is a call for the believing follower to suffer. And this is so different than the word of faith movement that if you have enough faith, he'll give you everything you want, riches, glory. It's not about that. Jesus is saying that the Christian life is a guarantee to suffer. And he may not make you suffer. You may cruise through this life and never have a difficult time. But what he's talking here is about a willingness. Do you have a heart that is willing to do whatever it takes for the Lord? And he's talking about identity here. The word he uses there, he's saying that you must deny, that there's an idea about in that that he's talking about the word is psyche. He's saying deny yourself, and it means psychology. It means who you are, your identity. And he's saying so many people, they identify with the things of this world. They live in this plane. And their identity is based on their children or their career or what they have. And he's saying, are you willing to surrender the things of this world for me? And if you're a Christian, you should. Because even if you gain the whole world, he says, you're going to lose your soul when you stand before me in judgment. This message is about losing, not getting. Are you willing to give up your misconceptions for the truth? Are you willing to live for his plans versus your own plans? Are you willing to give up an identity based on what's in this world and say, Lord, I want my identity in you? Because when you come to him and open yourself up fully, he gives you identity in him. The perfect love that you need and a new identity in Christ and now you can live it in power. Let's pray. Father, we see that uh, by your grace, only by that, Lord, could we do that. I pray now, Lord, if there's anyone here that has maybe had a misunderstanding of who you are, that they would repent and they'd receive you fully as the Lord, fully as the Son of God, fully as the Savior of the world. I pray, Lord, if there's a plan that's different than what you have planned, I pray that there's a willingness in our hearts, Lord, to turn. And I pray that our identity is found in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why don't you stand with me? This morning as I began to pray about what what should we do at the end of this service, my my heart was this. So often we get distracted, do we not? Particularly now we've got the Christmas season. And everything in our lives starts to be focused on other things than Christ. But there might be some of you here that, that your life, you've been missing Him. And you feel that your identity has been wrapped up in something else. That you've kind of lost your way, if you will, in terms of walking with the Lord 
in trust and faith and simple relationship based on His love and Him knowing you. And my prayer this morning for you, and I want you to pray with me if this is you, I'm just going to lead us in a prayer of a recommitment to Christ that He is number one. It's not our children. It's not my job. It's not my house. It's not this career. It's Him. So I just want us to bow our heads together as a church and recommit that. Father, we lay this before you. And we ask by your grace, Lord, that you'll, you'll forgive us, Lord. We have let the things of this world, the cares of this world, to fill our soul. But Lord, even if we gain the whole world, you tell us that we would lose our soul. We don't want that, Lord. We want you. Lord, we could recommit our life to you. We put you in the rightful place as our Lord and our Savior. May you be glorified by our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.